Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. We have an episode of a slightly different focus today, where we view EU decision-making from a political science perspective. Speaking to you on the 7th of April, it is clear that EU intervention will be of central importance to kick-starting the European economy once the COVID-19 pandemic dies down. Indeed, today is a day where the Eurogroup will meet to discuss their COVID-19 response. However, the nature and design of any agreed-upon economic measures are predicated on the political relationships that exist in Europe, political relationships that have evolved over financial crisis, a drawn-out Brexit negotiation, and now a COVID-19 crisis. To help understand the nature of these relationships and the bearing they may have on the nature of the economic decisions that, that will be made today and further into the COVID-19 crisis, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Bridget Laffin of the European University Institute in Florence. Professor Laffin is a leading thinker when it comes to the dynamics of European integration, Brexit and EU governance and has written extensively on the evolving nature of relations within the EU. We begin by first considering how the financial crisis and Brexit negotiations have shaped political relationships and economic decision making in the EU. Okay, so hello everybody and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by Professor Bridget Laffin. Uh, Professor Laffin is a director of the Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence and is a leading thinker when it comes to the dynamics of European integration, Brexit and EU governance. So the nature and dynamics of EU governance have been very important for economic decision making and it'll be useful to analyse these dynamics uh, drawing on your, your expertise. So perhaps... Um, we can use this insight to maybe say something what has happened in terms of the European Union and its uh, dynamics to date, and perhaps then we might inform our understanding of uh, the response to the COVID-19 crisis. In terms of uh, analysing this, it might be interesting to first think about, well, how we got here in terms of the economic dynamics. And I know you've, you've done a lot of work looking at um, the financial crisis, and perhaps that might be a good starting point when it comes to the nature of the evolving EU dynamic and how this has influenced decision-making. So I know you've done some work on maybe the framing of the response in terms of uh, core and periphery regions, but perhaps you could tell us a bit more about that. 
I, I will indeed. I think it's important for me to say that I'm a political scientist and not an economist. So that's the perspective uh, that I bring. Uh, in terms of the uh, Eurozone crisis, uh, that started, as we know, as a global financial crisis. But by the end of 2009, it was morphing into a Eurozone crisis for the following reasons. Uh, firstly, Greece had uh, used its time as a Euro member state to, to really ratchet up uh, its consumption. Uh, it had access to very cheap money for the first time and uh, very high growth rates, but a lot of it consumption oriented in the 2000s. And it turns out that its figures, the data on its debt was simply incorrect. And a new government led by a new government took over in autumn 09, uh, led by Papandreou. And very quickly, it became clear that the debt levels, the deficit levels were much, much higher. I think at the time they entered government, they thought it was about 6%, but in fact, it ended up being well over 13 So this was suddenly, there was a problem in Greece. And for the rest of the Eurozone, uh, there was at the time, I think that there was an unwillingness to accept or to imagine that Greece could damage the entire Eurozone. So it was considered Greece is small, it's not going to prove a contagion risk to the rest of the Eurozone. And be between December 09 and May 10, this was the time when, in fact, uh, the markets understood that there was a problem in the Eurozone and the EU wasn't ready to respond, in my view, quickly enough. The second problem was at that time that this was viewed as a public finance problem rather than a linked public finance and banking problem. And so the whole frame from the beginning was these profligate Southern Europeans are spending too much, and Greece certainly was, but there wasn't an acceptance in the core that this was also a banking problem and that it was banks in the core had lent enormous sums to Greece. So at the time, by May 10, when everyone understood that something needed to be done, uh, they, uh, they accepted that it was also a, a banking crisis. And at that time, there was... I think French and German banks alone were exposed to Greece to about 86 billion euro of lending. So it, that early phase was a phase of denial. Uh, but then uh, as the contagion began to leap from, it, it, from Greece to Ireland to Portugal to Spain, then it was clearly a eurozone problem and not a problem for Greece. Okay, and this led to a cleavage in the uh, in in the eurozone or, or the European member states. Could you maybe delve into that a bit further? So the cleavage was the battle lines were those who were in deficit and those who were in surplus, those who needed bailouts and those who would have to put up the money for bailouts, and so uh, that became 
it, it was famously called those countries needing bailouts were famously called the pigs, which was mm. most unfortunate. So Portugal, Ireland, sometimes Italy was part of that, Greece and Spain. And so in hindsight, uh, the Eurozone crisis could have been handled more quickly at lower cost if there had been uh, EU Eurozone intervention A earlier and B of a different kind because it was each country was treated as a special case. Each country had its troika. Each country had its bailout. The conditions were different across the member states. But I think one also has to accept that at the time when this started to gather fire, the EU, the Eurozone simply didn't have the instruments to address the problems. And the other part of the problem was uh, Prichet, who was governor of the ECB, he even increased interest rates in 2011, which was just plain wrong. Mm. And it really took uh, Mario Draghi to become president. And Draghi became president and very quickly, by July 12, his famous uh, his famous declaration that we will save the Eurozone and it will be enough. Basically, he announced without saying it that the ECB was the lender of last resort for the Eurozone. And immediately the acute phase of the crisis was over. Immediately the the spreads between different countries began to go down very quickly. So again, it's unfortunate that Draghi wasn't there somewhat earlier. So it seems if there was a lesson to be learned, it's that the solidarity really helped bring problem to a head and, and, and to tackling, tackling the issue. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that the Eurozone was a crisis of who pays. So who was going to pay the cost of adjustment? Who was going to pay for the risk to save the Eurozone? And disproportionately, the peripheral states paid for the adjustment. They had to, we all had, as you know, in Ireland, we had the internal devaluation and very significant cutbacks. There is no doubt that there would have had to have been fiscal retrenchment in all of the troubled countries. The question in is, was it at the right pace and was there too much of it? In other words, driving the countries further down than they needed to be and deepening the recession. But it would also be unrealistic to say that there was a, that the, that countries that were heavily indebted, and as we know, Ireland was heavily, its tax system heavily dependent on stamp duty, for example, and once the building industry went. So there was always going to be a fiscal reckoning the question is, could it have been less steep and would that have been better for the economies? If we move on then to maybe think about Brexit, you've written as well about the EU's response to Brexit. It revealed aspects of the EU as an evolving polity and how perhaps we can maybe learn through the EU's response to Brexit. But perhaps you could give us some insight into maybe how your work has identified aspects of, of the EU in this, this context. So interestingly, if the EU responded, if the EU response to the Eurozone crisis was faltering and took too long, the same cannot be said of Brexit. In my view, the EU has handled Brexit with extraordinary effectiveness. And that, in in my view, was partly because, so 
Brexit was an internal shock to the EU. A country is going to leave. But the EU transformed it into an external shock very quickly that basically said the United Kingdom is a country on the way out. It's becoming a third country and needs to be treated as such immediately. And so the EU said, we will negotiate as one, we will be united, we will not have any informal side deals, we will handle this collectively. And of course, once the EU said it would do this and did it, the EU combined 27 member states was much more powerful than the UK. And so it was a very uneven negotiation from the beginning and will continue to be an uneven negotiation. Okay, so it was it was the EU's framing in that context in terms of, of being the dominant uh, position when it comes to uh, dealing, with, de- de- dealing, dealing with Brexit. So the, the UK was a country with opt-outs in the EU. It wasn't a member of the euro, it wasn't a member of Schengen. And psychologically... Uh, the EU thought that it would, or sorry, the UK thought that Brexit was about being an outsider but opting into what it liked, mm-hmm. whereas in fact being an outsider was very different. So I think there was a mismatch in how the UK and particularly Theresa May understood what Brexit was, whereas the EU was very clear from the beginning Brexit was Brexit. Interestingly, even though that's what um, that's what Theresa May kept saying, Brexit is, means Brexit. Sure. In fact, I think the EU understood what it meant much more clearly than the British did. Okay, so a very much a, a clarity of thought then really uh, really helped in that context. So if we move on to maybe um, the the response to COVID nineteen, I see a few um, a few steps in terms of of of, of the impact on, on, on the approach to date. So we're, we're speaking on the 6th of, of, of April. But um, the initial declaration by Christine Lagarde was not evoking the spirit of Mario Draghi in that we're all in this together. It was, it was I mentioned that the, the bank's role was not to close the, spre- close the spread between Italian and German bonds. I wonder, I, I know, and since then, they, they maybe they rectified that and they showed more unity and, and, and um, solidarity. But I wonder, is there something to be learned from that comment, does it reveal something about maybe the approach and the psyche behind the ECB when it comes to dealing with this crisis? Or is it just perhaps maybe a, a communications blunder? So I think the first thing to say about COVID-19 is it really has come at the system really quickly. I mean, I lived in Italy. I left Italy for work on the 26th of February with a weekend case, thinking that within 10 days I would be going back. My flights, I, I, my flights were booked. Not only that, I had checked in. So I think even when I left Italy on the 26th and because I was in, in Tuscany and Tuscany was not at the epicenter, I don't think even most of Italy understood how serious that was. Mm-hmm. It, you know, less than a month, slightly over a month ago. So the first thing to say, I think, about uh, COVID-19 is that despite what was coming out of China, uh, I think all governments didn't understand how serious this would get, but also the speed 
I think it's the speed has surprised uh, has surprised governments and also societies. But once it became rooted in Italy and northern Italy, Lombardy in particular, then the rest of Europe was because of the connectedness was going to become an epicenter of the of the crisis. Moving to Lagarde, so Lagarde is. She's a new president. She's not an economist. She has been told she has to be extremely careful with what she says. Mm -hmm. And in my view, her response was the technically correct response because the ECB always, it, 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 the shield of the ECB is everything we do is to keep the money flowing through the transmission mechanisms. It's not about spreads. The fact is, it is about spreads. They just don't say so because the treaty, the tr their treaty base that allows them act is, in fact, the mo monetary transmission mechanisms. So she was asked a question and was technically correct in her answer. But of course, she should not have answered it that way. Why? Because within 24 hours, Italian spreads were rising. So in my view, it was a genuine mistake. And she then apologized to the executive board of the ECB because she understood very quickly, got this wrong. Then within five days, the ECB had come out with its big, big pandemic. Uh, uh, the, I can't remember what they call it now, but but mm -hmm. all of the all of the resources basically to fund health systems and welfare systems while the crisis is going on. And that's the most important thing they can do. No government in Europe will find it difficult to raise funding for the acute phase of the crisis to keep our systems going. And the two systems that really matter now are health and welfare. Mm. So what they did was big enough and important enough and necessary and we'll do it. I mean, there's no evidence that the spreads are problematic at the moment. And there's no government in Europe at any risk of being shut out of financial markets, which, if we remember, the Eurozone was uh, the Greeks were shut out, then Ireland was shut out, the Portuguese were shut out. So I have no doubt that the ECB action was correct and was enough for the acute phase. Interestingly, if you think it took so long in the Eurozone crisis for the big bazooka of the ECB to show its face, this time it was less than it was less than three weeks. So I don't think we the ECB can be accused of acting slowly this time. And they've basically said we stand behind the member states and we stand behind the euro. So one thing that that, that sort of came to mind and there's been a lot of discussion about is when it comes to the nature of, of how they, they get behind the different member states. And it seems that with that big bazooka, they're willing to, to buy up government bonds to the extent that keeps keeps interest rates down. And the alternative way of doing that would have been this corona bonds uh, issue and the debate that, that was held in that regard. And in effect, it appears to me that, that there's, this, there's the same effect, but it has a different optic. And for first, when we come to the corona bonds, I wonder... Um, has that sort of raised the old scars that you mentioned when it comes to the, the core and the periphery and, and, and the northern countries and the southern countries and perhaps 
is, is that something that, that, that needs to be considered? So I, I think that, that the ECB's role, in my view, is now at the acute phase of the crisis to keep the systems going, health and welfare. And that it has done and that it clearly will do. But then there is the other side of the COVID-19 crisis, and that is the economic shock, because it's a massive, massive, massive economic shock to Europe, to the world. Uh, the figures that I see of the loss of uh, gross product are very, very significant. It, it We're in not just in recession territory, but something bigger. So then I think, apart from the ECB action, the next question is, what does the EU need to do to make sure that Europe recovers from uh, the crisis economically? And how can that be done? And that's where I think the corona bond discussion comes into play. Because I think in addition to the monetary side, there has to be a fiscal response. Mm -hmm. And we're already seeing governments are, are pump priming their economies with a fiscal uh, with with a, a fiscal injection. But is there a need for European funds to do this? And in my view, yes. And tomorrow the Eurogroup are going to have a very, very important meeting as they put together a package on the fiscal side. And so one way of looking at corona bonds was that those countries, including Ireland, that asked for particular COVID-19 corona bonds that would be time-limited, once-off, and addressing uh, the, the fiscal side of the crisis. I personally support that because I think uh, it's very important because this crisis is also a psychological one for individuals, for societies, for communities. And in when crises are not just economic and social and political, but also psychological, that sense of having a shelter of everyone in it together helps, I think. So I was... I was prepared to support corona bonds. If, on the other hand, corona bonds so specified become so toxic that you get most of the euro states in favour, but then you get the usual suspects, the Germans, the Dutch, the Austrians and the, um, the Finns against, then I think... Corona bonds, corona bonds should be parked because you're not going to get the agreement. And therefore, you need to look at what's, what are the equivalent things that can be done. And the things that can be done, there is uh, the European Stability Mechanism, which is designed to help individual countries. It can raise uh, debt, and that has about $420 billion in it ready to be leveraged the European Investment Bank can raise debt and it can leverage and the Commission via the European budget can can leverage debt. So my sense of where we're going, although I have no inside knowledge as to uh, what's happening in the Eurozone, uh, the Eurogroup itself, is that you will get a combination of all of these different instruments. 
and they will amount to the kind of fiscal injection that Europe needs without crossing the red lines of those countries that simply won't agree. And the EU has no choice but to find compromise. Uh, In the absence of compromise, nothing gets done. In the absence of agreement that brings everyone along, nothing gets done. So I know there will be people who will say, oh, if it's not corona bonds, then it's no good. I'm not one of those. I think it's more important to get the to get the kind of resources available to the member states that will help them kickstart their economies when the acute phase of the crisis is over. Because the, the shorter the recession, the better the recovery, the less economic damage, labour market damage, scarring that we will have. And so my view is that there is, I think, what they famously call a landing zone now. And that landing zone will be a combination of different EU instruments, but they will be collective instruments. They will be instruments available to the member states. Okay, that's the psychology, actually, I find very interesting. Um, the, the optics of a corona bond really gives that impression of, of solidarity. So it gives that impression of solidarity, but I think detractors would say, well, we're moving more towards maybe a, a federalized Europe, and some people don't like that. Is there sort of a trade-off plus or minus here, and what would likely to be the the overriding benefit? It, so I think um, I think you, you will find that Corona will be attached to whatever comes out. So it'll be a Corona fund. It'll be, I don't think we're going to get away from Corona. And that's to signal two things. It's to signal a European response that is common, but it is also to signal that it is specifically for this crisis. That it's not something forever, but it is, you know, I think you will find if there's a fund, you would get very long maturities so maybe 30 years, so that the cost of this is kicked out. Uh, And I think it's also, in terms of the solidarity issue, the sense of we're all in this together. Interestingly, I do think that there will be other areas that have to be looked at, and one of them is how, in a highly interdependent world, uh, pandemics are handled, because... uh, we the world has to learn from this. This is proving to be a very, very costly pandemic in human life, in disruption of normal social exchange, in disruption of the normal community bonds that we all live by, even for families and for individuals. So I think you will also have a discussion at European level, not of European health policy, but rather, how do you strengthen response to pandemics in terms of um, stockpiling personal equipment, stockpiling of ventilators, stockpiling of masks? I think you'll get a whole debate about um, how to handle uh, pandemics, because I don't think this is the last one the world will see. Sure. And this one, I mean, if we look at the map, it was, it started, as we know, in China. The Chinese suppressed knowledge of it 
uh, and basically over probably six weeks uh, were not clear with the WHO and uh, the world has paid a very high cost for what China did in that early phase but then you could argue that Europe had time to plan and looking back on January I'm wondering whether by far the best thing to have done would have been to have literally closed Italy off and then the whole of Europe pile in capacity into Italy to help them at that crucial time, but to avoid the spread. But as we know, our airports were still open, even from northern Italy, way into March. And uh, it spread via both skiing. Skiing is one of the mm. major culprits here. Absolutely. <laughs> it spread it spread from northern Italy, but also Austria. And so that spread, once you get community transmission, it appears very difficult to close down a pandemic. So I think we have to learn from we have to learn from what happened and how can Europe prepare itself better. But of course, if you look now, it morphed from China to the US and from Europe to the US. And interestingly, I think the US response is much inferior to the European, which would not have would would have been counterintuitive. I, what's happening in New York and the fighting among the US states for essential equipment, uh, nothing would have prepared me for that in what is a federal system with a government. Mm. It's very much a collective action problem in that each individual country has their own incentive to want to look after their own people of course and they also don't want to lose face i think to a certain extent so if you're the first actor maybe there's more barriers to actually closing down but now with hindsight we can see that that would have been very much the way to do it but when they when the chinese were appalled when uh, when the australians closed the airports to flights from china so there would have been a huge reaction in Italy if that was what was done. Mm. But I think we, we need to learn. Um, and I have no, I mean, I think it's, it's legitimate for governments to take care of their own citizens. I don't regard that as illegitimate. I think they must. Uh, but I think it must be a must plus. In other words, that... Uh, if we can dampen down coronavirus across Europe, the sooner we get back to normal living. So we are also in this together. Mm. So one thing I wanted to discuss then was you've written extensively on the future of the EU. So it might be interesting to think about that in a more general sense and then maybe given what we know now about um, the COVID-19. So you did mention that... we. We had issues in terms of uh, the response to the crisis and Brexit and different successionist movements and the different pathways that we could be facing when it comes to the future of the EU. Perhaps you could just tell us a bit about that in a more general sense. So, so I think the, the first thing I would say uh, is that the EU is much more robust and resilient than it appears. It's all, whenever the EU confronts a crisis, there is both among academics, but also uh, the 
a public narrative of, oh, this is a moment of truth, this is make or break, this will undo the EU, this is existential. And one of the things I'm going to do when this is over is I'm going to look at how COVID-19 was framed in relation to the EU, both by social scientists and by political actors and in the media, just to get to the bottom of the why of this everything is existential. Whereas, for example, uh, as I said, the response in the United States is very poor, but one doesn't say, oh, that's the end of the United States. Mm. We take the US for granted, but there's a contingency to the EU. So let me say that I do not think COVID-19 is the end of the EU. Uh, it will alter the EU. It will leave a legacy, as everything does, because that's politics. Uh, but uh, I'm certainly not one in the, this is an existential crisis. So what, prior to COVID-19, uh, von der Leyen, the new commission president, had a very clear agenda for Europe, which in my view was a very necessary one. One was the climate crisis, two, digitalization and the digital economy and all that that means. And then thirdly, Europe in a world that is going through a geopolitical upheaval where we're seeing an old order ending and a new order fighting to emerge. So those were three things. They haven't gone away. Post the um, post uh, COVID-19, the climate crisis will have to be confronted. Now, one beneficial impact, I think, of COVID-19, but I could be proven wrong, is that it it has shown us that in extreme crises, public power is very necessary, that in the end, this markets will not solve COVID-19, uh, but governments and institutions will. And I think to respond to and to handle something as significant as cli the climate crisis over the next 20 years, we need a lot of public power. So in my view, one, this is a demonstration of public power and a very important one. Now, on the other hand, there are those who argue that uh, the climate crisis will be lower down the agenda because all of the emphasis will be kickstarting the economy, getting people back to work. But in my view, the climate crisis is a crisis of today, not of tomorrow. And I think uh, we will see a lot of action in Europe on climate over the next five years. Equally, digitalization the response to the digital economy, but also there's been a lot of digital innovation during the crisis. I'm quite surprised at how uh, I have managed to keep in touch, to attend webinars, Zoom meetings. I have done PhD defense. I've done all the things, <coughs> excuse me, that I would normally do uh, in, um, that I would normally do in in face to face, but I've managed to do them. Uh, I've managed to do them online. Now I think there are limits to online. I actually like face to face. Mm -hmm. uh, I would hate us to live in a world where we actually didn't have 
<laughs> a very high level of human mm-hmm. contact again. So I'm not I'm not advocating this as the future. And then, of course, on the uh, Europe in the world, um, I think, and this is for me, uh, I think the world is a better place if the United States is strong. Uh, I think this will weaken the US. I think it will weaken its power. Uh, China is also trying to run a narrative to disguise their original problem, the original uh, way they handled COVID-19 by saying, you know, we we're open to the world, we will hand out ventilators, etc, etc. So I think, um, I think there'll be a reckoning on the different kinds of power bases across the world after this as well. So Firstly, I would say that on the future of the EU, A, it has one, B, uh, it will, in my view, come out stronger from from this, as it does. But the EU has always got to strike the balance between how much Europe and how much should be left to the member states. And I am not an advocate of a very centralised federal Europe. I don't think that's a Europe that is available. I don't think it's desirable uh, because Europe is a continent of extraordinary difference and diversity, which should be protected. So I think Europe will find its way, the EU will find its way to a future. Uh, On Brexit, interestingly, I think there will have to be an extension of the transition. I see no circumstances in which any British government can leave the EU at the end of, leave the transition at the end of 2020 and uh, confront its economy with the COVID-19 shock followed by a Brexit exit shock. So I would expect uh, an extension. They won't want it, they won't like it, but in my view, they will have to have it. Okay. Um, that's, I think you've covered everything that, that I had uh, lined up. Okay. So th- that's, that was really interesting, especially from an economist's perspective, uh, to get the nuance behind different um, decision-making. Uh, it really is, is enlightening. So thank you, Professor Bridget Lassman. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to check out my conversation with Michael McMahon. He has an excellent account of the general macroeconomic response to COVID-19. Alongside that, please like and subscribe on your podcast app. A review on iTunes is like gold dust. It helps us climb up the ranks and get noticed by other people. So if you're, if you're listening on an iPhone, just scroll down, hit a five stars. And if you get time, write a short review. It really makes a huge difference. Um, so I hope you've been enjoying the new episode so far. I have some very interesting topics lined up for the next few weeks. And looking forward to that and speaking to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.